So, um, Christ Jesus, our uh, atoning sacrifice or propitiation, as we said earlier, is our subject. I'd like to give it my own title, and you might find it a bit of an odd expression, but the title is Blood Speaks. Blood is a kind of strange theme, as I said in my prayer, that anyone who doesn't know the Christian message or doesn't appreciate the Christian message would think this would think this to be a completely odd thing for us to talk to be talking about. But it is central to um, the Christian faith and message. And I'd just like to share some thoughts about the doctrine of atonement uh, under the title Blood Speaks. I've enjoyed uh, putting together so far these couple of talks and um, last week was redemption and I found myself trying to create a little sentence that satisfies me in terms of what redemption means to me. And um, I came up with redemption, a concept or doctrine intended by God to help me understand how much he loves me. Um, that's not an exhaustive statement about redemption, but it's what I appreciate. And I've got another statement which I'll share with you in a second about atonement. And I just encourage you to, um, to reflect on what you hear today and write a statement. I, I gave you some homework last week. I don't know how you got on with reading in one sitting the book of Ruth. Um, but um, hopefully we did that. If not, then you're late. <laughs> um, homework this week is after we've had our discussion today about atonement and propitiation, just write a sentence or two in your own words as to what it means to you. Imagine someone comes along and says, atonement, what does that mean? It would be great to have um, something up our sleeve that we could um, articulate to them. Um, here's, here's what it means to me, and this statement came after my study. So it says, atonement, a concept or doctrine invented by God to help me understand that his holiness demands perfect justice. And that in my case, his perfect justice, justice can be satisfied at no cost to myself. Maybe that's a bit of a mouthful, I'll say it again. Atonement is a doctrine invented by God to help me understand that his holiness demands perfect justice. And that in my case, his perfect justice can be satisfied at no cost to myself. Um, that's what it means to me, and I'll ex explain um, that in a bit more detail in a second. Uh, it's great to have a, a key verse to hang our message on. Um, I won't test you on what our key verse was for redemption last week. Um, but this week we're on uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 and 24. And this is our key verse. Not sure whether I'll refer to this again in the talk. But it seems to me um, a really helpful verse for us to hang our discussion about atonement on. And it says, um, 
You whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the key sentence is that there is... um, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. It's where my title comes from. In Raise Him this morning, uh, I won't won't read it now, but check out hymn 99 verse 1 because it, it uses the same expression that his blood speaks before God's throne. Um, there's a reference there to Abel's blood there's a really sad verse in uh, Genesis chapter 4 Abel was the first human being to physically die and God seeks out um, Cain and he says your brother's blood is um, calling out to me and um, in this verse in Hebrews 12 uh, the, the thought is that the blood of Christ is calling out to God and it's far, far better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel was a tragic uh, statement to God. The, the blood of Christ is a celebration and that's what I want us to try and understand today. So Christ's blood speaks. Um, I want us to um, structure our discussion with three P's. I think we had five P's last week. We've got three P's this week. First is the principle. The second is the parable. And the third is the promise. All under the title of Blood Speaks and it's about atonement and propitiation. I've um, I've made four points that seem to me to be the consequence in my heart of understanding a little bit more about atonement and I've said again it's my own words to me it's a thrilling doctrine that isn't entirely unique to the Christian faith Um, this concept of someone atoning for someone else isn't unique Uh, lots of faiths um, talk about that and in particular Many faiths say we would atone for ourselves. So unlike redemption, which I was saying last week is unique, atonement isn't completely unique as a concept um, to the Christian faith. But the truth of atonement, um, as the Christian faith describes, is completely unique in terms of involving um, the blood of Christ. When you grasp it and accept it, it's two things though, you have to understand it and you have to accept it. It gives you absolute confidence that you will never be held to account for your own wrongdoing, past, present and future. That's amazing to me. When we grasp the truth of atonement and the way Christ's blood speaks, we can be confident that we will never be accountable um, for our own wrongdoing, past, present and future. Number three, it liberates us from the feeling of guilt and empowers us to fill, to empowers us to a fulfilling life, um, a kind of fulfilment that the word, the world cannot offer. 
a fulfillment that is unique. So coming to the realisation that my wrongdoing, past, present and future, will never be... Um, I'll never be held uh, accountable for it, gives me a liberation. <laughs> and it enables me to live the life that God intended me to live. And I wasn't able to do that while I was um, shackled, let's use that word, by sin. <coughs> uh, I don't know what you think of this expression, but it liberates me to be the best possible version of myself. <laughs> that sounds like a bit of an ego trip. I don't mean it in that way at all. God made me and he's given me a job to do. He made you and he's given you a job to do. And the truth of atonement, um, satisfying God's justice, releases me and gives me the liberty to be the person that God intended me to be in the first place. So that's kind of a background thing. Let's talk about um, the principle. I wanted to go to uh, Exodus 25 and read a couple of verses, actually verses 10 to 24. I was thinking that it's uh, such a strange expression, atonement, not one we would use in everyday conversation, that I'd look up where it first occurred in the Bible. Uh, maybe its first occurrence in the Bible um, is an important reference for us to go back to. So I discovered, uh, um, as far as I know this is correct, that the first occurrence of the word atonement is in Exodus 25, reading from verse 10. And this is the instructions that God is giving to Moses about the tabernacle. This is this very special tent, which would be the means by which God's people, the Israelites, would, um, would be enabled to worship him. And... Um, Every aspect of the tent and its contents, its furniture, were described in detail. So that, that's the context of this. So verse 10 of Exodus 25, and God says, Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four rings for it, and fasten them to the four feet the two, two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put, the ark, then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put the ark and the test. Put in the ark the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all, com all my commands for the Israelites. Imagine this instruction, it's, a, it's in the middle of a, <coughs> a whole collection of very detailed manufacturing instructions for this very sacred tent which would be 
the vehicle by which God's people would, would worship and serve him. And the very heart of this sacred um, construction is the Ark of the Covenant. And just amazing piece of, of art and engineering, this piece of wood, uh, this, this wooden box that's overlaid with pure gold. And um, the atonement cover is the lid. I was thinking you, you're kind of given this instruction and all of a sudden you're given this expression, an atonement cover. What on earth does that mean? It's got no history. Nobody would have, would have made any sense to anybody. And actually, curiously, um, it wouldn't make any sense even after they'd built it. Not until God explained the context of it. Um, it's also called, in other versions, a mercy seat. And um, <clears throat> that's just a, a different translation. It struck me, these are very different expressions. How can you get from one Hebrew word, either atonement cover or, or mercy seat? They seem just so different um, statements or words, translations of the same Hebrew word. And that is a, a reason for debate. Apparently the word cover or seat doesn't feature at all. That's been added by the translators to try and bring some sense to, um, to what's trying to be conveyed. The thought is, it's the place of atonement. This cover is the place of atonement where God, in, um, where God extended his mercy to his people. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. So, the first occurrence of the word um, is this, at the heart of the tabernacle, and it's the arguably the most important piece of furniture there is. It's the Ark of the Covenant and it's the cover of it with these two cherubim as has been described. So that's a little bit of an introduction to this word being very, very special. <clears throat> Let's go to the, the principle. Atonement is what it takes to put something that is wrong right. Say it again. Atonement is what it takes to put something that is wrong right. And it's usually determined by the injured party. Um, its atonement is what it takes to bring conflicting parties back together again. I've heard this ministry put forward as atonement is at one meant. And to be honest, that didn't mean anything to me. At one meant. Um, okay, it's a, it's a breakup an actual breakup of the word, but I didn't find it particularly helpful. Um, but in this context, uh, atonement is what it takes to bring conflicted parties back together again to bring about at one meant. Maybe that's the way to remember it. Here's a really important point. Atonement is the extra that's needed when saying sorry simply isn't enough really important point for us to embrace atonement is the extra thing that's needed when saying sorry simply isn't enough here's an illustration <clears throat> imagine me as a little boy 10 year old um, and I, I was really quite a good boy well behaved um, and uh, kind of look back and say I didn't really have much fun I was always um, too scared of my dad or whatever um, many of you know that my dad was a, a 
professional gardener, so he worked for Liverpool City Council. And he and his brother, Stan, his elder brother, sorry, his younger brother, Stan, uh, managed a nursery where they grew the plants and stuff. Many of you will remember Corte Park, and that's where we used to live. So we had a tied cottage in a, a park owned by Liverpool City Council. Fabulous place to be brought up. Um, 35 acres, five of which were glass greenhouses. And um, me and my schoolmate, Andy, uh, one summer's evening, it must have been about eight o'clock, so no one was in the nursery. My dad wasn't there, and he didn't know I was there. I had my own key. <laughs> um, we went in, and you can imagine what a nursery's right like. It's got all these uh, wheelbarrows and buggies and things, and we just used to have a fab time, you know, dragging each other around the nursery. So um, five acres of glass, it's quite dense. So there are single paving slab paths between each greenhouse. And rather stupidly, we plotted a race course in between the greenhouses. And uh, we would take it in turns to wheel each other in a wheelbarrow and it would be timed. You know, which of us pushing while the other one was riding would get round the course um, the quickest. A stupidly dangerous thing to do because you're um, legging it down pathways which has got walls of glass on both sides it's only one paving slab wide, and then a wall of glass at the end that you had to uh, quickly uh, divert out of the way. The inevitable happened, and I was wheeling my mate Andy at great pace, and we smashed right through the, um, the window. Uh, fortunately, there was nobody hurt, but I think we probably took out three big panes, and they're like six by four, six foot by four foot panes of glass. Incredible crash, and here's little Stevie who never does anything wrong saying what's my dad going to think so we kind of um, rush back home and I'm in tears and um, my dad the wise man that you know him to be sitting there listening to the story and uh, he says what, what are you telling me for so I said well what you, you know it's your greenhouse no it's not it's your uncle Stan's greenhouse he's the boss you go and tell him so I said, well, I can't do that. Uh, he said, that's what you've got to do. It's too late now, tell him in the morning. What I didn't know is he'd gone to Stan and said to Stan, you make sure he pays for that because he needs to learn the lesson. So um, I get up the next morning and I go to Stan and I'm still all tearful, nervous as anything. And I've got something to say, you know, I've broken three windows in the nursery. And um, Stan plays the game and says, well, I'm really pleased that you've said sorry. But sorry isn't enough. We've got three broken panes. Um, they need to be put right. So um, what happened in the end is I got my pocket money docked. And Stan says, um, you're going to learn from this, so you're going to help me repair the windows and put the new glass in. Got a great thing to do. The atonement was putting right the wrong you know it's all very well me saying sorry and then backing off and saying well it's now someone else's problem that's not how it works the problem needs to be dealt with and making atonement was in that particular context it was um, correcting the wrong that had been done when sorry just wasn't good enough by me 
contributing, I'm sure it was just a small contribution to the overall cost for the glass and helping um, put it back together again. That is atonement. Um, propitiation, it's a New Testament word, it doesn't feature in the Old Testament, um, and it's the act of gaining forgiveness and or blessing. So it's actually the same thing. So in that context, I made propitiation for the damage. I atoned for the damage. So I guess you, you, you get the point. I wanted to, um, to share a verse. It's Romans 3, 22. And it says, a very familiar passage this, there is no difference, this is between people, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's uh, another verse that says, this verse says, all have sinned. No, it starts by saying there is no difference. So everyone is counted in this condemnation that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Another verse says, the wages of sin is death. Um, now, it's God in his sovereignty, and we, in my original statement about um, his holiness demands that his justice is satisfied, God in his sovereignty, he sets the rules, and he's saying that um, sin is such uh, an offence to my holiness that if it gets tolerated without being dealt with, then I lose my holiness. So the whole point here is that we can go to God with our apologies, recognising we're, we're, we're guilty of sin and we can say we're sorry. And that's accepted, but it's not good enough because his justice demands that our sin is dealt with. You might think, well, isn't that, isn't that a bit pedantic? You know, if someone, if someone did me some wrong and they came and said sorry, I'd say, well, that's fine, don't worry, forget it, appreciate you said sorry. Well, that's compromise. And God's holiness does not allow compromise. And therefore, atonement has to be made. Sorry just isn't enough. I'd like to illustrate the point again from, um, we talked about the principle, now let's talk about the parable. Um, it's actually quite a, a powerful illustration in Exodus. And this is between God giving Moses the instruction we've just read about the atonement cover um, and the building of it and the commissioning of uh, the tabernacle for service. So this is an event that happens in between those two things. And we can um, read about it in um, Exodus 32. And it's the story of the golden calf. Um, background here is uh, they're at Sinai. So in our study of, um, of Exodus a few weeks back, we were talking about how the cloud and the fire appeared and that was evidence of God's presence and his direction. Um, now they've come to across the Red Sea and they're, they're free of the Egyptians and they've come to Sinai and they're camped in Sinai. So... 
Um, I'm assuming that the, the cloud and the fire are um, now stationary. They're still there, but they're not missing. They're not moving. So the people are camped. And Moses goes up into Sinai, where God's presence is, and um, he's communing with God. And that's where he's getting the instructions for the Ten Commandments and also the detail of the tabernacle. And he's there for six weeks. And um, so he's absent for six weeks, and the people are just left there. He's, he's brought us out of Egypt, and we appreciate all these miracles and stuff, but he's disappeared. And they say to his brother Aaron, you know, has he forgotten about us? <laughs> Um, we need we need something tangible, and they come up with this idea together of creating a calf, a golden calf, uh, an image. And how bizarre they create this thing and then say, "This is the God that brought us out of Egypt." You know how how ridiculous, but that is is what they did. Um, Moses comes down from the mountain, and God's primed him. So you can read about it in. Um, in chapter 32, God said, the people have built a calf and they're worshipping the calf. You need to go down and sort them out. And of course, Moses is, is livid with this. And uh, God is, is furious, you know, and he's going to be judging his people for this um, sin. Um, so he comes down and gets the calf, grinds it up into dust, throws it into the water and makes them drink the water. And you can imagine Moses must have developed into a very fearsome character and um, they were quivering. And um, some, some of the people got punished and died. They paid with their life. But the majority was a small number, um, less than 1% of the people. Um, the remainder of them said, we're, we're really sorry. Um, you know, we want you to plead for us, plead to God for us on our behalf. Let's go to chapter 32, verse 30. And it says, um, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Uh, Moses was saying, they're really sorry, which they were. Um, and if sorry isn't good enough, then take me. And God's saying, Moses, you've got your own sin to deal with. Uh, I'll be dealing with you personally for your own sin. You know, don't presume that you can make atonement for those people. Those people have to pay themselves. And this isn't this isn't God being difficult. It's God being holy and just. There's no compromise, and it has to be dealt with. Um, what happens then between Exodus 32 and Exodus 40 is this: people who are very contrite, they've been very. Um, sorry for what they did and they're now in the process of obeying meticulously God's instructions and during this time God's in the mountains so I'm assuming the, there's no evidence of God's presence anymore um, there's no pillar of cloud and fire he's left, he's, he's up in the mountain and um, for however long it takes 
think I read somewhere that it was about seven months that people were following these explicit instructions and manufacturing the tabernacle. And while all that while that was going on, God's presence wasn't there. It wasn't amongst them. And um, you know that that's a statement of meticulous obedience. And the people had said they they were sorry. They're now being completely obedient, and God's presence still isn't there. It's a lovely illustration of what a lot of people misunderstand about about a relationship with God. They say you've got to be sorry, and then you've got to do your best and hope. Well, the people were sorry, and they did an excellent job. They, you know, every um, I was dotted, every T was crossed in the way they followed God's instructions in building the tabernacle, but his presence wasn't there. Let's go to Leviticus 9, verse 5. They took the things Moses command, commanded to the front of the tent of meeting. This is now when everything is, is completely manufactured. And the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Sacrifice the offering for this is, for that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And then going to verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering and the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting Then they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions of the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. The point is that God's presence didn't return to his people until the blood had been shed, until the sacrifice had been made. So when sorry just isn't enough, when complete devotion and intricate, detailed obedience isn't enough, a sacrifice has to be made. And it's the shedding of the blood and the sprinkling on the altar. That is the atonement parable that's talked about in the New Testament. We haven't got time to talk about the Day of Atonement. I was going to mention that too with the, with the two books. But we'll have to, um, to look past that. So we, hopefully we've got the principle. It's, um, atonement is uh, what's needed to be done to make what's wrong right. Um, we've talked about the parable. And there's a lot more um, to the parable of atonement uh, in, in the Old Testament than I've alluded to. Um, You might want to read Leviticus 16. That's the account for the Day of Atonement with the two goats, the goat that was sacrificed and the the scapegoat. But for the sake of time, let's go to our third P, which is the promise. Um, the, The promise to those who have experienced the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ that's the um, blood having been shed sorry I should have made the point that the parable the word parable is it's a an earthly story with a heavenly meaning um, 
you might ask yourself the question, why all this blood? You know, and obviously there was a lot more sacrifices than just this Day of Atonement. There was probably hundreds of thousands of animals that were um, being sacrificed. Um, and why did God demand all of this? Well, it was a parable, a, an Old Testament story that was designed to point to the future sacrifice of the Lord. Hebrews 9 verse 1. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. This is the writer in New Testament times talking to people, to Jews, Christian Jews, who are very familiar with the Old Testament practices. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would not have, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. It's amazing statements. These people uh, in Old Testament times, they were encouraged, as we've said, it's the principle of atonement, to um, kill animals and, and sprinkle their blood and then you get to Hebrews and they say the sacrifices of, of animals can't take away sin. Well, what was the whole purpose of it? It was to point to the ultimate sacrifice. Um, Moses was not able to make atonement because he had his own sin that deserved to be punished. The Lord Jesus comes as the perfect one, the only um, acceptable sacrifice to meet God's um, justice. And... Um, it says that he offered himself and a body was prepared and we were um, reflecting on that in the remembrance this morning. So our atonement, our atoning sacrifice is the one who had no sins of his own to be punished for but he came and took our punishment for us. He was our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice and it's God's justice being satisfied because of his perfection. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful truth. And it makes things which people, people who don't appreciate this, it makes things which to them are bizarre and very strange. It brings them to life for us. And it's, um, it's the core of our Christian experience. My time has gone, but I did want to um, reflect very briefly on um, the promise. And we'll go to Romans 6, um, verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free uh, from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I've quoted Romans 6 and 23 already today, the wages of sin is death. I've quoted it many times and always used the context that this is about God's um, punishment against sin, eternal punishment against sin. The context is actually about Christian living. And I think that's a, a really interesting complexion on that verse. It doesn't take away the truth that um, the wages of sin is death that, that we've talked about. But what it's, it's talking about is our day-to-day experience and battle against sin. When we've accepted the Lord Jesus as our saviour, he is our atoning sacrifice. We have no worry about being held accountable for our wrongdoing, as I said in the first place. That's our eternal security, sins forgiven, past, present and future. What this verse is talking about is our battle every day. And the promise is that he is there able to take away the effects of sin, the consequences of sin in our daily lives, which will spoil our service. And the reality leads to, as it says in verse 22, leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. This isn't an expectation. This is a here and now experience. It's the wonder of um, fulfilling that life that God intended us to have Finally, uh, 1 John 2, verse 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And it's a, it kind of brings our, our topic to a conclusion. We were talking about blood speaks and John is saying to to his audience that um, you know we really ought not to sin but if anyone does sin we have one who speaks to the father on our behalf and he speaks by the demonstration of his blood uh, it's Christ the righteous one the atoning sacrifice and um, his his blood spoke at Calvary and his blood speaks every day in the presence of God to um, diminish or get rid of the effects of our sin, to remove them from us so that we can experience the eternal life which God intended. Sorry, I've gone over a little.